History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Egyptian History Podcast, Episode 8, That Which I Own. Last week, we examined the monuments of the 4th Dynasty's 3rd and 4th kings, named Jedefre and Khafre, respectively. Mortuary temples, the centre of the funerary cult, which enlivened and supported the deceased king's soul, or Ka, were discussed, as well as the construction of a unique monument, the Great Sphinx. This week, the episode is divided into two distinct sections. In the second section, we continue our narrative history of the 4th dynasty, and talk about Menkaure, the third of the Giza pyramid builders, and his legacy in Egyptian history. In the first part, we open a discussion of economic matters, specifically land ownership, and the extent to which individuals who were not the king could hold their own estates. It's an economic discussion, and I realise that's not for everyone, so I'm going to try a new feature, which I began to test last week, and will start including more and more throughout the podcast. I will begin introducing small musical interludes to separate major points of discussion within each episode. This may seem like a slightly unusual structure for a podcast. Normally, a history podcast will stick to one basic topic, and if there is another big subject to be tackled, they will give it its own episode. At first, I thought that I would do that as well, but then I realised that the nature of Egyptian history means that evidence for certain concepts like the economy or the role of women and deities only begin to appear in very specific historical and cultural contexts, and cannot be divorced from them. As a result, episodes of the Egyptian History Podcast will begin to divide themselves between two sections with increasing regularity. I'll cap the sections at two, otherwise we'd risk running overtime and into information overload territory. So in this first section, we'll discuss aspects of the Old Kingdom Egyptian economy, specifically the issue of private land ownership. Our sources for this come from a funerary context, but unlike the enormous monuments and cult temples of the rulers, these two are more literary in nature, and from people who did not rule in their own right. For the sake of convenience, we'll call them private individuals, to distinguish them from the king, but both of them were connected in some way to the royal family. The first was a man named Nikaure, a younger son of Kafre. The second was a man named Metchen, who was an official in the reign of Sneferu, who you may remember was the father of Khufu, and grandfather of Khafre. We are jumping backwards in time a bit with this man, but because his biography has to do with private affairs and land ownership, I elected to place it here, in order to not disrupt the narrative of Sneferu, Khufu, and Khafre, the three greatest monument builders of the 4th dynasty. So in some respects, today's episode is a detour from the royal narrative that has been dominating the podcast so far. Fortunately, we are finally entering a phase of history, where documents and records begin to appear that are not solely related to the king and his accomplishments. The private, non-ruling individual will become an increasingly prominent part of the story from here on out, 
and I don't know about you, but I'm excited to tell this story. First, I will recap briefly what we know of the economy in the 4th dynasty. We know that beyond the villages, farming estates, and towns, where most of the agricultural workers in the population lived, the kings established enormous settlements near to their necropolis. In these towns, which we will call pyramid settlements, a population of some thousands worked exclusively on matters pertaining to the pyramid and the necropolis around it. Food, including wheat, barley, goats, cattle, and sheep, were brought in from all over the Nile Valley. Bread was baked in the settlements, in sufficient quantities to feed the thousands of men necessary to quarry and haul the stones used to build the Great Pyramids. But the settlement produced no food of its own. All the material it needed for food production came from outside, from farms and estates in the Nile Valley and Delta. The majority of this land was owned by the king and the extended royal family, who used it to both fund their construction projects and to fund their funeral cults, but also to ensure that no other family had sufficient economic power to challenge them. In theory, the king could demand compulsory labour, levy taxes at will, and take any resources that the land offered, but the extent to which he actually did this probably wasn't that great. It was in the best interest of everyone if he kept the status quo mostly unchanged. But when it came to the pyramids, the rules changed slightly. The king's construction projects required a great deal more than labourers and overseers. It needed administrators, scribes, architects, and officials to manage and organise the complex system which could fund these construction projects. These men weren't going to simply work out of love for the king, they needed to be rewarded. So the king allowed men of great loyalty and service to build their tombs next to his pyramid, and the king himself seems to have paid for the construction. But he also began to reward them with more and more material wealth, which for the most part was fine because these men tended to be related to the king either by blood or marriage. So even though he enriched them, he still kept the wealth somewhat within the family, and could assure himself that he retained control over the major sources of economic power. As I've said, not all of the land in Egypt was in the king's hands. The royal family members held property as well, subordinate to the king's authority, but in their possession nonetheless. Thus we meet Nekaure, the young son of Kafre, who in the 24th year of his father's reign laid down his last will and testament, bequeathing to his wife, daughter, and sons various pieces of his accumulated properties. We know that this is a, the 24th year of Kafre, because the prince makes record of the twelfth occasion of the count, which was a biannual census throughout the two kingdoms, in which the cattle being raised and farmed in the Nile Valley were counted, in order to assess the relative wealth of the kingdom. Scholars argue over just how regular this was, claiming either that it was every two years, every one year, or just whenever the king felt like it. The regularity of the census probably did fluctuate to a certain degree, depending on who was in power, an actively interested king may have done it every year or 18 months. A slightly more laid-back ruler may have kept it at two years or less. But overall, I think a biannual count was probably the average, and it's what I'm going to go with for this podcast. So on the twelfth occasion of the cattle count, around Kafre's 24th year on the throne, Prince Nikaure decided that the time had come to divvy up his possessions among his family to ensure their comfort and prosperity when he was gone. He made special note of the fact that when he made the will, he was, quote, on his feet without ailing in any respect, which is essentially the Egyptian equivalent of saying, I, Prince Nikaure, being of sound mind and body, do hereby swear, etc., etc. 
I love little phrases like this, which show so nicely that no matter how much time passes, humans do certain things in certain ways and just stick with them. Writing a will? Better make sure that everyone knows you were healthy when you did it, otherwise anyone with an axe to grind could say you were coerced and contest the will for his own benefit. To his friend, Nika and Nemte, the prince gave two towns, which probably means a couple of villages attached to farmland owned by the royal family. To his eldest son, named Nikaure after his father, the prince gave three towns to the east of the Nile, probably around modern Cairo. To his daughter, Hetep Heres, an exceedingly common name among royal women of the time, he gave two towns, both east of the Nile. To his second son, Ka'en Nebti Ware, the prince gave three towns, one of which was in the delta. And to his wife, also named Nika and Nebti, he gave at least three towns in various parts of Lower Egypt, one of which was attached to the pyramid town established by Khafre, and seems to have been, at first, given to his daughter, but upon her death was instead given to the wife of the prince. This last part suggests that Nikaure drew up more than one testament in his lifetime, and later in life simply updated it to reflect the realities of the day, and to remove children who had died. You may be asking yourself why this is particularly interesting. People die, and they want to give their stuff to their families and friends. Big deal. Well, fair enough, but it's important in another sense. Until this reign, we've been operating under the impression that the king owned pretty much all the land in Egypt, and used its products to fund his building projects. Individuals would farm the land on the king's behalf, and get to keep a portion of the harvest for themselves, but still there would be the onerous responsibility of providing a large amount of goods to the tax collectors. Nikaure's testament shows that the king did not keep all the land within his personal possession. Royal family members could share in this, and they were relatively free to dispense their possessions as they liked. Most of the time, since they gave it to their wives and children, it stayed within the possession of the royal family as a whole, and so the king could be reasonably assured that he and his extended family dominated the economic wealth of the kingdom. But Nikaure gave two villages to his friend, Nika and Nebti, who is only described as one who knows the king, rather than anyone of blood relation, like son or brother or cousin. This means that part of the prince's wealth, and therefore the royal family's wealth, has moved out of their possession and into the ownership of a minister or official who simply benefited by association. This is a nice gesture, but what happens if the king has many princes, and each of them give a small portion of their land to their friends or confidants? What you get is a slow but inevitable bleeding of the royal resources and properties into the hands of individuals who are not related to the king. Noble servants, or married cousins they may be, but they have their own priorities, and cannot always be counted on to act solely in the interests of the king. This is the first step in a process that will come to destroy the power base of the old kingdom royal family, and lead to a period in which powerful individuals bearing no relation to the king are able to assert their own authority and autonomy within private kingdoms. This begins here, in the late 4th dynasty, when individuals begin to accumulate, slowly but surely, their own wealth, and no longer rely exclusively on the king for their sustenance. With that, it's time to end our discussion of the 4th dynasty economy. Personally, I love economic study, and devour it both in historical and modern contexts. So there will be more talk of this throughout the podcast, but I'm not going to emphasize it at the expense of other things, like deities or myths. If I haven't talked about them much yet, it's because we haven't been given an opportunity by the evidence visible in the historical record. But trust me, that stuff is coming.
Carfrey died sometime in his 26th year on the throne. He had left an enormous legacy in terms of architectural achievements and monument building. The second of the Giza pyramids stood nearly as large as its predecessor, and the Great Sphinx presented Carfrey in a uniquely grandiose form of union with the sun god Atum Re. Within the mortuary temple of his pyramid complex, the king was venerated as a soul ascending to the heavens, there to unite with the gods and his equally divine ancestors. In front of the Sphinx, another temple venerated him as the incarnation of the rising and setting sun, and introduced the notion of solar worship as something that deserved its own special sanctum within the king's funerary complex. Carfrey's legacy is not just one of enormous monument building, but of bringing religious ideologies and cult practices to the very forefront of royal funerary complexes. The veneration of the king as both rising and setting sun had been developing quietly for some time, but it is not until Carfrey that we see this notion incorporated into the royal pyramid complex with its own temple. The cult of Ray was growing in importance, and the king kept in touch with the winds of change by incorporating more and more elements of this mythology into his own iconography. The enormous cedar ships buried beside Khufu's pyramid had facilitated his journey through the sky with Ray, but Khafre's sphinx embodied him in a semi-animalistic form of Ray, packed with the notions of power and wisdom facing towards the rising sun. Sadly for his own legacy, Khafre's son and heir Menkaure did not add much to what had gone before. He came to the throne immediately following his father's death, and after taking as his wife a woman named Kamerer Nebti, meaning the two beloved ladies appear, Menkaure had soon established a small but thriving family of his own breeding. His daughter, Kentikaus, is one of the few figures to have emerged from this period. Unlike Kafre and Khufu, of whom we know several children, both male and female, the lineage of Menkaure is, with the exception of his daughter and one son, pretty quiet. His son, Prince Kuenre, did not live long enough to succeed his father, and in the end, the throne passed to either his nephew or grandson, depending on which source you read. In his lifetime, Menkaure was served by numerous brothers, half-brothers, and cousins at court. The family of Kafre was large, and many of its members were of an age to contribute meaningfully to the government by the time Menkaure took the throne. Why exactly Menkaure was chosen to rule is uncertain, but given that he ruled for just 18 years, we can suggest that he was probably somewhat older than most of his siblings by the time his father died in his 26th year, and thus Menkaure had the most experience in addition to his blood claim. But untangling dynastic connections in Egyptian royal families is a nightmare at the best of times, and the Old Kingdom is far from the best of times as far as evidence is concerned. Menkaure's pyramid at Giza is the smallest of the three, and it is only because of a trick of photography that it often appears to be close in size to the other two. In truth, it's about 60 metres. This makes it not much larger than that of his uncle Jedefre, whom we met last week. It's just a shame that he chose to build at Giza, where his tomb was certain to be overshadowed by that of his father and grandfather. If he had built somewhere else, like Saqqara, Menkaure's tomb probably would have been the most impressive in the area. But c'est la vie, as they say. Menkaure's pyramid was small, but his mortuary temple was not. He began it in limestone, and probably intended to finish it with granite around the outer walls but sadly the king did not live long enough to see that completed. His death came after approximately 18 years on the throne, which in theory 
should have been plenty of time for his pyramid complex, which was smaller than that of Khafre in every respect except the mortuary temple, to have been completed. The conclusion is inescapable. Pyramid building, on the scale seen at Giza, had strained the economic apparatus of the two kingdoms to an enormous degree. Following the death of Khafre, which had featured not only a pyramid nearly the size of Khufu's Great Pyramid, but an enormous sphinx and extensive Mastaba cemetery as well. If we measured the cost in relative terms today, no nation would spend as large a percentage of their economic output on one project as the Egyptians did. So it's mostly down to economics that Menkaure's pyramid was so much smaller and took so much longer to complete. Under Sneferu, the complex would have been completed within 10 years, so it's a mark of economic strain that this pyramid should take more than 8 years longer to build, and still, the complex was not even completed. Even if the funerary complex itself was not really finished, the temples within it were still made functional and capable of operating the funerary cult of the king. In the valley temple, which seems to have laid adjacent to a canal or artificial harbour, Menkaure's devotees installed a large series of granite statues, approximately waist-high on the average human. These statues are not like the life-size images of the king, common in the mortuary temple up against the pyramid. These are intended to receive offerings, but do not act as bodies for the ka or soul to the same extent as those larger statues. In other words, they act as recipients of offerings, but also are off offerings themselves. The images are carved from single blocks of stone, and feature the king stepping forward while flanked on either side by two protective goddesses. To the right of the king stands Hathor, the goddess symbolised by a placid cow, and whose crown is a pair of horns holding a sun disc between them. To Menkaure's left stands a minor goddess, patron of a local province within Egypt, which we know today as a gnome. There were 42 gnomes in Egypt, and it has been theorised that 42 of these statues may have stood in Menkaure's valley temple, but to date only a few have survived. While earlier statues of individuals had shown them seated with their wives, like the prince Rahotep, who was a son of Sneferu, Menkaure was the first king that we know of to depict himself alongside goddesses in a sort of holy trinity. What's more, whereas earlier couples were presented in separate statues that could be placed far apart from one another, the Menkaure statues are one single image. That is, the three figures are carved from one piece of stone. For this reason, we refer to these statues as the Menkaure triads. These images and the pyramid are all that survive of Menkaure's reign and we know very little of his policies or personality. What we do know is that Menkaure had a daughter who would come to fulfil the powerful social niche in the years following her father's death. She would bear the exalted status of having mothered two boys who both grew up to rule as kings. She built a magnificent tomb at Giza, near to the valley temple of Menkaure, and her funerary cult was venerated for over a century after her death. Her name is Kenti Kaus. She is the first major royal woman to appear in the historical narrative, and she will dominate our episode next week. Menkaure's death gave Kenti Kaus the opportunity to assert a level of influence over the royal lineage that has not yet been seen in our history. Her power is so great, she will appear in her tomb wearing the cobra headdress and false beard of kingship, suggesting that Kenti Kaus ruled the two lands in all but name. Her power will radically redefine our understanding of Egyptian kingship, and forms the symbolic backdrop to the rise of the 5th dynasty.
What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.